0: Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 56, with your host, Ray Hurtow, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes.
1: Mark Savatsky, Chiefs Boston.
0: And joining us today, we have...
2: Debbie Ryan, from Debbie Ryan and Associates.
0: Awesome. Hey, Debbie, how are you?
2: I'm very well. How are you?
0: Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Another remote podcast. Uh, I think this topic is something that we've all... you know, Mark, Dan, and I have been talking about this for quite a while. You actually share some office space with us here in South Boston, and um, you have actually had a pretty interesting career as a, I hope I don't mess this up, architectural or access board member, or what's your official title?
2: I'm an accessibility (laughs) consultant.
0: Ah, accessibility, yes. (laughs) That makes
3: it easy.
2: (laughs) Right.
1: Debbie, who do you typically consult for? Is it architects, developers, all of the above? Uh, pretty
2: much all of the above, a lot of architects, developers, a lot of attorneys, and builders, and basically, and owners. anybody who needs help in navigating their way through these
3: requirements. Awesome. Do you, have any, do, do, you do any work, consulting work for like municipalities or the state? I or okay. I do.
2: I have acted as a consultant to building departments and will do their plan review and inspections for just for accessibility. I've done some of that. I've done some state and local government surveys and um, helped them. My client actually is usually the architect, not the state or local government, but for a governmental project.
1: Similar to fire protection, which we talked about a few weeks ago, this is just one area of the code that you really have to be well-versed in because it can trip you up in a meaningful way. You can think you have this fantastic duplex unit and come to find out that that is a, a violation. And uh, the codes are, are not very ambiguous, though there are some perhaps loopholes or, or ways to interpret them. And so with that, Debbie, maybe you could just share with us, what are some of the uh, biggest or typical red flags that you see when you're cracking open a set of drawings for uh, a residential project?
2: For residential, basically how I approach a project, assuming it's new construction, there are a couple of things you need to look at. In, You need to decide how many units are in the building, when will it be constructed, or when was it constructed if it was existing, and are the units for rent, hire, lease, or sale. So once you establish those answers, then the review, it can get a bit complicated because there are different accessibility standards that will apply.
1: To break that down, Deb, can we start with number of units and the notion of New or existing, because I know that those are very important distinctions. So three units or more triggers this and yeah. four X number of units for FHA. I'll uh I'll stop yeah. leading the witness here.
2: <laughs> I mean we could do a whole co- podcast just on housing. Yes. Boston, and and we have done some I've done some seminars at Build Boston or now ABX it's called, just an hour and a half to three hours on just on accessibility and housing because it is complicated. So If you are in Massachusetts, the cutoff starts at three or more units. Doesn't matter where the money comes from, which is people don't understand. So three or more units, new construction. When I say new construction, I've been saying that for quite some time. And in Massachusetts, that new construction basically means something that was built after 1996. That's when it first kicked in.
1: That's, so, if you're renovating something that was constructed in 1998, it's no different than a uh, brand new build. Technically, yes,
2: because wow. it should have complied then. Wow! So, if if you ha- if you take a a triple decker that was built in 1998 and it did not meet the requirements back then, the building has an existing violation, and the violation goes with the building, not mm. with the owner.
1: At what just number like of it. units does fair housing? So there's, there's MAB and fair housing. Maybe right. we want to just so start with M-A-A-B that distinction. MAAB
2: is the State Architectural Access Board.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the State Access Board is a specialized code incorporated by reference into the Mass State Building Code. So it's a building code enforced at the local level by local building inspectors. But just because you got your permit doesn't necessarily mean you're in compliance. So just that's just an aside. So that's the state. Then there's the Federal Fair Housing Act, which applies to any housing constructed in the entire country of four or more units. So the state of Massachusetts starts at three, Federal Fair Housing starts at four. The Federal Fair Housing Act is not enforced at the local level. It's pretty much a complaint-driven process. And generally HUD enforces the Fair Housing Act and If you are a large developer and you build, you know, millions of units throughout the country and you have been found to not comply with these standards and HUD takes a look at you, there's, I mean, it could cost you millions
1: of dollars. That's when you get called.
2: Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so different enforcement mechanisms. And generally, HUD is not going to go after a four unit developer. Um, they, generally <laughs> after, they generally go after the big fish, so to speak. But all the accessibility stuff, it's all in the details. It's great to have an architect who knows what they're doing, but and even a code consultant that will review for you for, you know, building, fire, whatever. The accessibility stuff is really detail-oriented. I mean, we're talking
3: inches and quarter Is the state code more stringent than the federal code? Sometimes, not
2: always. So uh, to just to back up, I was the director of the State Architectural Access Board. But I was there for 26 years. I basically started my career. It was then called the Architectural Barriers Board back in 75. I became the director in 87, and then I left in 2002. And in, between 87 and 2002, I went to architectural school nights, and then I went to law school nights because I couldn't figure out why architects and lawyers weren't understanding all this. So I was supposed to kind of be able to talk on the same playing field as them. But the last major rewrite of the state regulations was in 96 when I was there. That was supposed to line up with the 1991 ADA standards. Since then, the 2000 standards, the ADA 2010 standards have come out, which are effective in March of 2012. But the state access board has not updated their regs yet. So in some instances, the state is more stringent. For example, housing, right? So housing starts at three or more units under the state, under the federal, it's four. So in that case, the state is more stringent. But when you look at the technical requirements, there are a number of differences and you need to figure out which one is more stringent and it can be extremely difficult. So if one code says it has to be 36 inches period and another one says 36 inches minimum, sometimes people think bigger is better when that's not always the case. And so if it's one is 36 and the other is 36 minimum, 36 is the more stringent. So. You need to kind of know how to compare the two, and they are not written in the same way. They're like apples and oranges trying to figure out, does a toilet in this instance have to be 17 to you know, 16 to 18 inches off the side wall, or does it have to be 18 inches? You really need to have if you're dealing with housing, you need fair housing, the design guidelines for your housing and the state regs if you're dealing with places of public accommodation you need the ADA standards and the state regs so at minimum there are three different requirements depending on what you're doing
1: i can see why you had to go to law school to understand <laughs> yes. all of this
0: let's say you're building you know a, a new residential building are there any requirements in terms of does every unit need to be accessible or does it just have to be a percentage or a certain number of units
2: so in massachusetts You have a building with three or more units. All of your ground floor units need to meet a minimum standard. So in Massachusetts, there are two different types of units. They're called Group 1 and Group 2. Group 1 is similar in design to fair housing. They are similar, but they're not identical. But they're similar. Group 2 is the old 5% handicapped accessible unit, which most people new back in the day. So the group two only kicks in if you have 20 or more units in a building in a project and they are rentals. So it's 20 or more in a project and they're rentals. They have to be rentals. So if you have a 20 unit development and they're all condos, the group two does not apply. But all of your units in a building with an elevator have to meet minimum standards all of the buildings on the, all of the units on the ground floor of buildings without an elevator.
1: So quick follow-up to that. If I have a roll-in unit on the ground floor, can I then have an unlimited number of units above it that are not, what am I trying to say, adaptable?
2: As long as you don't have an elevator, Mm -hmm. once you put an elevator in, it triggers all of the units to meet the requirements.
1: So you could have a nine-unit building. And if you have one unit that's roll-in accessible, than the other units above. So long as there's no elevator, uh, do if, not need to.
2: If you only have one unit on the ground floor.
1: Right, understood.
2: Yeah, yeah. if you have two units on the ground floor, both have to meet it.
1: So and then what if your floor. unit on the ground floor is a duplex, a townhouse? Can we talk about, I've heard different rumors about this code. It's something that we use a lot.
2: If you look at the way the regulation is written, It defines a townhouse as a dwelling unit with living space more than one story. That's what the state 521 CMR AAB defines as a townhouse in the regulation. It goes on further to say that townhouses are exempt from the requirements of group one. So technically, that would mean your unit does not have to comply. There has, however, been an opinion issued by the AAB, that they don't like their definition of townhouse. So they decided to change it to what the building code definition is, which means you you know there can't be a unit above or below and you have to have firewalls on either side. Mm-hmm. That is not what the regulation says. And they did not hold a public hearing to change the regulation. So I am not clear as to what their authority was to do that.
1: That's good to know. That's really
2: helpful. <laughs> but that is what their quote official policy is and I don't know if anybody has challenged them on that. In order to change a regulation, you have to go to a public hearing. And you have to put your regulation forward, solicit public comment. And if you look at the regulations, the regulations were not written to ever intend on including duplex units in a building. Because if you read the regs, the only thing If in fact the townhouse definition that the AAB is now saying is their definition, if that holds, that means you have to put a full-size elevator in that duplex,
1: nothing else. Is that right? So a limited use elevator, what we often refer to as a LULA or a lift, that is a variance?
2: That has to be a variance because there is no provision in the regulation for that exception. And it's interesting because there is an exception for a group two unit, which is a fully accessible unit. So a group two unit, one in which a person with a disability would most likely rent or buy or whatever, it has the five foot turning radius. It has the bigger bathroom, the bigger kitchen. That unit is intended to be fully accessible. That has an exception in there for a vertical lift in the future. So you yeah. have a fully accessible unit that has an exception for that, but you have a less accessible unit that the AAB is now saying needs a full passenger elevator, which does not make <laughs> sense because that's not how the regulation was written.
1: We just defined group two, which is that fully you turn the, you turn the uh, lock and you open the door and everything is there, fully done. Group no, one? Yeah. no, everything
2: is not there. The space is there. So, space is there. Yeah. Is that so a- see grab bars in the, in the bathroom, Okay, you have to have blocking in the wall. You have to have blocking in every single unit, regardless. Let's just talk about a building with an elevator where all sure. units have to yeah. All units have to have blocking at the tubs and the toilets, period. In a group two unit, there's a bigger space between the toilet and the sink or the toilet and the tub. You need five feet where the toilet is. So it's a much bigger bathroom. You have to have a roll-in shower if you have two baths. One of the bathrooms has to be a roll-in shower. That's group two. That's group two, yeah. And
1: group one is adaptable, right? It's more than... Group one is adaptable. It's
2: similar to FHA in that the things that are required in a FHA slash group one bathroom are you have to have, under FHA, you have to have one accessible entrance. Under AAB, all entrances are technically supposed to be accessible. You are required to have 32 inch clear opening doors throughout the entire unit. You are required to have usable bathrooms and kitchens. A usable bathroom means you have to have a 30 inch by 48 inch clear floor space clear of the door swing at initial construction. That's where there's a difference between the AAB and FHA. AAB allows the adaptation of the dual later, FHA does not.
1: That's Group One adaptable. Group right. Two, and at which points again? Forgive me, you said it at the start of the show. Do you need to rec- do you need to provide Group Two units? It's after Group um, elevator.
2: is when you have twenty or more units in a project, and they are rentals.
1: And they are rentals. And what percent needs to be Group Two? Five percent.
3: Group two is also if you add a, uh, the second you add an elevator, everything has to
1: comply, right? Everything needs to be group you, group one if you have an elevator. Cor-
2: correct. We got Not group two. So yeah. if, you, if you have an elevator in your building, all of your units are covered but under group one. I all see. of them. In addition, if there are 20 or more in their rentals, in addition, you have to have 5% group two.
0: Now, in a building like these that we're, it it falls under that jurisdiction. It's a big enough project. Are you also brought in and and hired to kind of do like an affidavit, almost like how an architect will do an affidavit? Or does that AAB jurisdiction or rules fall under the architect as well? And they can sign off saying it looks like it was built to comply.
2: Yeah, they can sign off. But I, I mean, like I said in the very beginning, I mean, it is the architect's responsibility. There is no license to do what I do. It's, based on experience and expertise and whatever, but there is no license. So I have a number of clients that are developers. I actually just came from a a development this morning where I do all their plan review for them, and then I do inspections for them. Mm -hmm. So I go out during construction prior to sheetrock going up to make sure they have all the blocking in the right place, that their electrical outlets are in the right location, because that's an additional requirement under group one that your electrical outlets, controls, and switches and all that have to fall within a certain zone. So I make sure they're all in the right place, the toilets are in the right location, and all that. And then I do probably four or five walks throughout the project and up to the final. And some people I will give a letter saying, you know, it's my opinion it meets 521. And some building departments are very comfortable with that.
3: It sounds like, there. I mean, there's so many nuances to the code you know, as we all know, these municipalities, these building departments are, are always stressed really thin. Like how often are people getting called out from local municipalities on a violation that someone sees or a local building inspector?
2: It, you know, it depends on the municipality and it depends on what the advocacy community is like in that area. Some cities and towns, you know, you, don't know a hell of a lot about this stuff. <laughs> and I i would never expect a building inspector to be looking at the details that I would be looking at. I mean, they have a lot on their plate and the stuff that I look at, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, making sure thresholds are no higher than a quarter of an inch. And I mean, a lot of detailed stuff. If they have an active disability commission, the inspector may be more cautious of things, but just because you get your certificate of occupancy or whatever, it does not mean you're okay. And I, nine times out of 10, most of the cases I've been involved with is because somebody got caught afterwards. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, that sounds like it's coming from experience.
2: I've been involved in a number mm-hmm. of lawsuits on the ADA side, not on the state side. And they are very large lawsuits, which you don't want to get. And, and when people hire me, the whole idea is so they don't get sued.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> you know, yeah. fix it now. While the wall is open, if you see a problem, you want to fix it then. You don't want me to come out when the project's all done and say, Well, you know you have to move this this wall here where the you know where the toilet is and
3: When does all this stuff kick in for existing buildings that were built prior to nineteen ninety-six?
2: Are we talking residential still?
3: Yes. Yes, yeah, so residential, yeah. So
2: this is a residential podcast. Yes.
1: For the most part.
3: Uh, there's some, Yeah. There's some commercial. Okay. Yeah. But
2: because there is a big difference between the two. So I don't want you, you know, when I said 96, that's when fair housing came in and that's when group one applied. But the state AAB has had regulations relative to housing since 1975. So any rental development of 20 or more units that was built after June of 1975 should have had 5% of those units fully accessible.
1: Does the notion of group one or group two matter if it's for sale or for rent? I know you mentioned, you answered this already.
2: Yes, group two only applies to those units for rent.
1: Okay, but you can't get out of group one even if they're You've for never sale. get
2: out of group one, ever. And the interesting thing is, you know, and I see it a lot in Southie, is you build mm-hmm. a, a three-unit building with a mm-hmm. garage on street level your first floor is the second floor your yeah. ground floor is the second floor and you have to provide access up to that ground floor
1: with a full size elevator
2: you can use a lift with the variants
1: a lift with the variants right? i've applied they have
2: granted those but i have noticed that recently that people have been getting caught in that they never put them in
0: are lift i mean lifts are generally smaller but do they make lifts that are the same size as a, a standard elevator that would also comply
2: well They make lifts in a number of sizes, but there are a number of requirements for a full size elevator that wouldn't really apply to a lift. Is that
0: more like weight capacity or something?
2: Yeah, and it's all elevator board stuff. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, I'm just curious because I mean, you can get a lift that's the same size. I'm I'm probably just thinking of this too simply.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just just
0: the size. That's one of many variables.
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Usually, what you'll see in these smaller, like I said, three unit developments that are, you know, popping up everywhere with where you have to have parking is you you have to, what I've seen a lot is people will draw a box on the plan and show, well, this is where a lift would go. And it, you know, is smack in the middle of the garage and it pops up in the middle of a living room. Well, you know, that's never going to happen. So people are getting caught now because they haven't really planned for that. And I know the access board, the state access board, because I believe there is a local building inspector from the city of Boston on the board now. So they are keeping an eye out for those things.
1: One other area that we look at a lot is um, the entrance to the building. And that means a very specific thing, right? Like some people would like to say, oh, I have a ramp and handicap accessible route to that door. But Mm -hmm. if the mailboxes and the front entrance is considered the other door, you may have a problem. How does that all play out?
2: Well, under the state access board regs, they require all entrances to be accessible. Okay. So if you have, you know, a three-story building, no elevator, your main entrance has to be accessible and that entrance has to lead to your ground floor units Mm -hmm. and and the mailboxes have to be accessible, you know, Mm -hmm. from those ground floor units.
1: We had a challenge recently where there is a flood elevation. You want a roll in unit, but you can't put your door threshold at grade because of flood. So the two codes were sort of in contrast to one another, (laughs) mutually exclusive almost. Have, Have you seen that?
2: I've heard those arguments made, but I have never seen them fully played out, even if you went to the state access board. Sometimes they, you know, people will say, well, you know, the flood. Zone uh, is requiring us to you know put a step, or the historical commission is requiring mm-hmm. us to do X or and you know another agency. When it comes to accessibility, you don't want to be the test case, <laughs> but they will take that on the state access mm-hmm. board will will take it on because they you know they're part of the state building code. And where I've seen them grant a variance is when the electrical code, for example, the state says you have to have electrical outlets. 18 inches from an interior corner. No, they can't be closer than 18 inches from an interior corner, but the electrical code is going to say you need electrical outlets every so many feet. So they will give a variance because you can't violate the electrical code, but it's, you're not being denied access in that case. If you are creating a threshold where you are being denied access, I think you, you, I mean, you would have to go to the state to get a variance and I think it would be hard pressed to get one.
3: So going back to to my question about the existing multi-unit building. So, for instance, if you're if you buy a six-unit, an existing six-unit building, and you're going to gut it and conduit. Yep. Do you have to comply with with Group One? No.
2: As long as that building was built prior to not, ninety-one under federal fair housing, and prior to ninety-six under the state. If it was built after those dates, it should have complied when it was built. So, I mean, just to give you an example, if somebody files a complaint in three years after you guys build it and they go back and look at the building permits and find out that it was built in 1998 and you should have had group one units on the first floor then and you didn't, they still have authority to make you change it. But if it was built in 1980 and you, you are gutting a six unit building and, you know, renovating it into condos, there is nothing you have to
1: do. So I've applied for a few variances over the years to the MAB, and uh, I've always found them to be a pretty reasonable group. The process wasn't expensive. It didn't take long. It was almost refreshing relative to a lot of other variances that we've, we've sought. Can you speak to a little bit of the process for applying for a variance? And also why they require you to burn copies of CDs for here. Well, your...
2: I can't speak to the burning copies of CDs, actually. Um, That's a thing. So when I was there, so like I said, I ran the agency up to 2002 and we automated everything. So it made the variance process pretty simple and it's a $50 filing fee. So it's the, the expenses and in the time to prepare mm. the application. Right. So yeah. what happens is, um, you, the the applicant, needs to prove to the board that compliance with the regulation is either technologically infeasible or the cost of compliance is excessive without any substantial benefit to a person with a disability. So you have to make one of those two arguments. That's statutorily, you have to make one of those two arguments. A lot of times people will only make the argument about cost and it will fail. It also depends on what you're requesting a variance for. Mm-hmm. If you're requesting a variance on a, on a ramp that is supposed to be 48 inches wide between handrails and you only have 46 inches and you're confined on both sides by you know brick walls, you know, it's pre- that's a pretty simple request. If you're requesting a variance not to make your front entrance accessible and you have one step, depending on the circumstances, it might be a little more complicated. So depending on what you request the variance for, depends on how it all plays out. So you submit the application, you send a copy to the local building official, the independent living center, and the local disability commission. And the reason for that is sometimes people aren't always truthful on their application, so to speak. And if the disability community or the independent living or the building inspector has some additional information that would help the board make their decision, then they'd like to hear from them. And I think in all honesty, probably 80% of the time, no one responds. Every now and then, depending on the city or town, the board might get some information. The CD, I have the same problem with. Uh, nobody <laughs> can make CDs anymore. No one burns them. Now that there's a new director there now, Will Joyce. When I left, Tom, I had I hired Tom Hopkins, and Tom Hopkins uh, became the director, and then he passed away, and now it's uh, Will Joyce. And because everything is being done virtually and online, maybe that will go away where you can submit it through email. It Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense if you, you know, if you can, (laughs) why you would have to send a CD if you can actually just do it by electronic (laughs) filing. Anyway, so the board meets every other Monday. So they hold the application for two weeks. So you have to look at their schedule to figure out timing. If you miss their two-week deadline, you could be waiting four weeks.
1: It's nothing in development days. Every one development day is like a month of real days.
2: (laughs) Yeah, So. (laughs) You could get it heard in two as quick as two weeks, or, or you know it could take a little longer. So and fifty
1: dollars is free.
2: A fifty dollars <laughs> filing fee, right? I'm surprised up on that yet. I mean, and that was it was fifty dollars when I was there.
0: Yeah. So. Mark, don't start. Yeah, Mark, what Mark, what are you doing?
3: <laughs> well, and I think oh, this is like, a breeze.
1: <laughs> He's like, the process I'm, is easy. i complimenting <laughs> the MAV. The process is, is very well done. It's but I
2: mean, even the board members, they're, yeah. you know, seven, six of the nine board members, you know, take a full day out of their jobs every other Monday. And I think they get paid $50. Uh-huh. Right. Wow. So, yeah. but anyways, um, so so, uh, Will, Will Joyce, will take all of the applications that are ready for that two week you know, period and he'll review them and he presents them to the board. Hmm. You know, now he's doing it virtually and yeah. you can go on any Monday and listen to their meetings.
1: And uh, you if- don't need to attend with an attorney. Like if this were the well, board of appeals, hard. you would show up with a suit and your lawyer. This just gets heard. You don't even uh, present.
2: Yeah, so what, what happens in the first go around is the board tries to... You know, make a decision without anybody there based on the information. So it's real critical that you put your package together in a very clear and, you know, precise manner so they understand exactly what it is you're requesting. Mm -hmm. Because Will presents it, they'll ask them, they don't have copies of it in front of them. You know, Will is reading it basically, Mm -hmm. Um, and he may put up a plan or something. So, and then they decide whether to grant it with conditions, deny it, or schedule a hearing. And their new thing is they're saying to packet it, which I guess means Will makes a copy, sends it to them for the next meeting. That doesn't make sense to me. But if they deny it, you always have the chance to request a hearing. So sometimes if you request too many variances, they may say, we're going to deny it or we're going to call you in for a hearing because it's a bigger matter and we Mm -hmm. want to talk to you about it. Sometimes people will say, Well, is it worth requesting a variance? And I'm like, Well, you're already at no. So it's 50 bucks. They could just confirm that no, or there might be an alternative. So so basically that's how the process works. If they deny the variance, you have the right to request a hearing and then you go in and you bring in whoever you want and you bring in board. well, I mean, we're doing it virtually now, so I guess you do it the same way you do a Zoom meeting. You present your information. That way, but prior to COVID, you would go to the uh, boardroom and you mm-hmm. would make your presentation, and they would be able to ask you questions back and forth, yeah. and then the decision is made. And that decision, if you are not happy with that decision, basically your only recourse is to appeal it to Superior Court.
1: Just a quick note: Tom Hopkins, the former director, was just a great guy. I was—I just remember being very early in my career; I was absolutely knew nobody. <laughs> And wow. uh, he was good enough to take an advisory meeting with me. I had a small issue. I brought my plans by myself and he just took all the time in the world to show me how to fill out the application. And- uh, You it was just, him well. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> so- you, Yeah, is that something you can get an advisory uh, so, before so you apply?
2: You can, you can request an advisory opinion, but the key is that an advisory opinion is only on a question of, you know, application of the regulation. You can't request an, avi- an advisory opinion as to whether you'll get a variance, mm. but you know you can request an opinion as to whether something complies. If, you, you. if there's a question on a code, you can request an opinion. And if it's a simple opinion that the board has acted on many times, then Will should be able to answer that for you. If it's a new issue and he's not comfortable, he'll bring it to the board for their, the whole board to vote on.
3: You served or you, you'd still serve on the United States Access Board? I do. I do. And you were appointed by President, President Obama, Obama, correct? I was. That's pretty cool. So, how, can you tell us about that and yeah, how and that how happened? How did that happen?
2: How <laughs> that happen? Huh? Yeah. It's all of a sudden, what, Obama's office of calls you. <laughs> what the, well, actually, that like, happened. What? It was very strange. I mean, I've been in this field for 40 something years now, and that's all I've really done. So, I knew a lot of people in the accessibility world. And I, I knew a few people who told me back in 2011, they said, why don't you apply to be, after I left the state, I left the state in 2002 and set up my own business because I felt like I was becoming too much of a bureaucrat. And it was time, it was time to let somebody else steer that ship. I had been there too long it, for me. And I thought it was a good time. Uh, I, I brought the agency to a point where it pretty much could run by itself. And I thought it was time for, for me to move on and let somebody else take over. So when I, I left in 2002 and then in 2010, somebody told me you should apply to be on the U.S. Access Board. And I re- to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't really know a lot about the Access Board. I knew who they were, but I always thought, well, that's the ADA. We don't deal with that in Massachusetts because you know we're the biggest and the best. And at one time we were. So I went on to the White House website, believe it or not. And I submitted my resume. Then I forgot about it. Never (laughs) thought anything else about it. And um, I was sitting, it was in the winter and I was sitting in my living room and on my TV, a telephone number came up. It was rather odd. It, It wasn't unknown. It wasn't unavailable. It just was a very odd, I forget what it said, but it was odd enough it made me answer the phone. So I answered the phone and they said, Is Deborah Ryan there? And I said, Speaking. They said, I'm um, so and so calling on behalf of President Obama at the White House. And my first reaction was, <laughs> How much money are you looking for? Or, you know, <laughs> campaign contributions or something. He said, The president would like to know if you're interested in serving on the US Access Board. And I, I did got, it caught me totally off guard. And I, and I said, um, Yeah. He said, Well, do you have any questions? I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with that, I had to go through the confirmation process which was you know all done over the telephone you know they they called and I had to have meetings with attorneys and they had to do background checks and all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and I think it took about about 4 months and I was sworn in in July of 2011 What do you guys do? We write the ADA standards. So um we're the agency that writes the standards. So there's the ADA And there's Mm -hmm. the ABA. The ADA being the Americans with Disabilities Act, Mm -hmm. the ABA being the Architectural Barriers Act. So the Architectural Barriers Act applies to federally owned and operated facilities. We enforce that. So if somebody files a complaint on a post office, for example, we are the enforcement agency of that. And the design standards are pretty much the same as the ADA. There are a few little differences, but The ADA is the same. The ADA, we write the design standards and they are enforced by the Department of Justice or the enforcing agency that has the standards like Department of Transportation. They do transportation issues, but Department of Justice is basically the enforcing agency. We do training. And so we meet every other month in DC. And once a year, we hold an out-of-town meeting somewhere in the country just to kind of let people know who we are and get people, let them, you know, people get to know us. So I was appointed in 2011 and you're appointed for a four-year term or to fill the expired term of somebody. So I, the term I took, I was filling a term that that person was a holdover. So I only had, I think a year and a half of my first term. And then I got reappointed for another four-year term and you can only serve two terms, but my term expired almost two years ago, and you stay on until you're replaced, which is not uncommon that people stay on for a couple of years afterwards until, I mean, until the administration fills the position. So there are are 25 members, 13 appointed by the president and 12 appointed by federal agencies, representing federal agencies. So like the Department of Justice, Department of Veterans Affairs, the Postal Service, Department of Education, they're all members of the board. Mm-hmm. And then the remaining 13 of us are appointed by the president and we're from all over the country. And the majority of people have to be people with disabilities. So I've met some really cool people and made some great, great friends there. So nice. so I'm still on. We just had our meeting last week, a three-day Zoom meeting. So we meet for three days. We fly down. I fly down on Sunday and we meet Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I come home Wednesday night. Every other month.
1: That's really cool.
2: You know, there's all kinds of stuff. Right now, the administration has put a hold on writing regulations. So the requirement is now for the government that every regulation you want to write, you have to eliminate two. So there's not much we can eliminate. So we have a whole set of standards on public rights of way ready to go, but we can't publish those. We have passenger vessel requirements, playgrounds. We have outdoor recreation. If you want to know anything about accessibility, our website has a wealth of information. There are animations to help people understand how things work and how a person with a disability navigates through a space. So it's really cool.
0: What is that website?
2: It's uh, www.access-board.gov.
1: And if folks wanted to get a hold, hold of you, Debbie, uh, or needing consulting services for MAAB-related matters, uh, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: You can reach me at uh, 617-268-9423.
1: Is there anything big that we skimmed by that we should have asked about oh, MAAB? begin.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was mostly a housing. I felt like more of a housing podcast. Yeah.
1: We try not to do retail or... (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff on places of public accommodation and the confusion Mm. between ADA and the state that, you know, maybe another time we can do. Okay. Lots of information on that
3: too. I'm sure the commercial side, like restaurants and all that is just a whole other... Can of worms as well. It
2: really is. I mean, there's there's um, formulas that you have to determine how much money you're spending compared to the assessed value of the building to determine compliance with state code. However, just because of that, it doesn't really mean anything because you are obligated under the federal law to remove barriers in any place of public accommodation in the country. You are required to move barriers to the extent that's readily achievable to to do so. And there are people filing complaints left and right in this country on places that haven't done that. I probably Mm. dealt with about 30
3: complaints in the North end alone. Mm, I was going to say like the little, the little tiny like pasta place in the North end and, you know, in 150 year old brick building that's attached on both sides. Like how do you even. There's always something
2: you can do. Like if, if you're trying to comply with the ADA readily achievable barrier removal standard, it might be as simple as a doorbell and a buzzer and somebody comes out and helps you. If you are trying to comply with state AAB, it's purely a building code and you would need a variance. So two different things, and there's a lot to it. And, and people have a tendency to miss the um, readily achievable stuff, which is where the lawsuits are.
1: We've definitely learned a, a lot, Chad, with you today, and we appreciate you taking the time. Well, yeah, I'm happening. overwhelmed. <laughs> I have two pages of notes here.
3: Uh, I'll have to do that part too. Well, if we ever get involved in a project that that's large enough, we will absolutely be giving you a call. We know where to find you. You
2: do all the details.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this has been great. We really appreciate it. Again, I think you already gave your contact information. So. Appreciate everyone listening in, liking, subscribing, reviewing, and we will see you on the next one. Cheers! Thanks, Thanks, Thanks. Debbie. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you, Debbie. Really appreciate it. Okay. Bye. All right. Have a good one.
1: Thanks. Take care. Bye.